Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is My Truth. Tell me yours. Uh, on this episode, I talked with Dave Gutter, um, Grammy winner, uh, the first Grammy winner I've talked to on here, actually. Um, Dave won a Grammy recently for co-writing the song Stomping Ground, performed by Aaron Neville and the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. Dave is also known for being the singer-guitarist, primary songwriter for both the Rustic Overtones and Paranoid Social Club. And Dave's one of the people, when I first started doing this podcast, he was on a list of people I wanted to sit down and chat with and have been kind of good-naturedly bugging him for the last couple years uh, to try and talk to him for this. So um, I'm glad we're finally able to do it. really appreciate the time that he gave me uh, in his studio in Portland, Maine. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun and uh, really dug hanging out with Dave and uh, chatting about music and, you know, getting a, a, a brief history of his musical career. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Grammy winner Dave Gutter. Sure. <laughs> I'm uh, Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. I'm speaking to Mr. Dave Gutter. He's going to turn off his phone. <laughs> yes, I am Dave Gutter. I'm psyched uh, to be chatting with you today. Yeah, thanks for thanks for taking the time. Um, like I said, I've been doing this for like six years. And when it first came about, I, I just, I know a lot of artists, writers, creative people. And I would always like get together for a coffee, get together for a beer and like, inevitably the creative process gets talked about and like sort of my creative thing I do, I, I paint a lot, but I would get a lot of ideas for like how to have better practices through not necessarily talking to other artists, like visual artists, but just people about their process. And then I got to the point where I was like telling other artists, I was like, Hey, I was talking to this guy a couple of months ago and they do this. And then I was like, I should start recording these conversations. So that how, that's how it came about. And then, so I looked at my immediate like scope of people. I was like, let me make a list of people who I would think would be interesting to listen to talk. And then I was like, maybe I'll have 30 names. And I started writing down names and I had like 120 names. And then I was like, all right, let's go one step further. People that I don't necessarily know, but people that I know, know and made that list. And you were one of the people on the list. And I was like, yeah, that'd be cool to chat with you one day. And I think, I think a couple times over the years, I'd be like, Hey, do you want to do this? But I also know like you're an incredibly busy guy. So, um, and also, you know, me living down in New Hampshire, you're up in Portland. I was like, well, it'll happen whenever. And the weed laws (laughs) that keeps you out of New Hampshire. I I understand. I understand. Um, but so I thought, well, this was, uh, you know, after you won the, uh, the Grammy for co-writing Stomping Ground. I was like, perfect, perfect opportunity to, to, to bug you again, to sit down and chat with me. So, yeah. I'm super psyched. I want a Grammy. Woo. You're uh, you're the first Grammy winner I've had on here. So that's, oh, nice. uh, that's pretty cool. My podcast is like, we just talk about horror movies, but they're like, we have a Grammy winner on every week. What's the name of that podcast? Uh, Speak all evil. Nice. And we just do uh, horror movies from all over the, the ages. How do you, so how do you guys decide before, like, I'm assuming 
you pick the movies beforehand and then you watch them and then the next episode you sit down yeah when we get together it's someone's turn every week okay and when we get together um to do the episode we have to tell them what we're gonna watch for the next week so i gotcha um yeah, it's fun. And other than that, though, we also have um, sometimes we have guests on. We have actors and we have directors and yeah. producers and stuff on our show uh, that we interview uh, remote, remotely usually. Nice. So um, we're up in Portland at your studio where you've said you've been 18 years. Yep. Um, how to kind of jump around rather than starting at the beginning, because I mean... C- correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, you know, of course, using Wikipedia for this, but this is this is sort of like the 30 year anniversary of you being making music. Uh, I mean, it might be longer. I yeah. Mean, I, I, if I'm lying about uh, my age as a musician, it's only because I've lost track. Sure. Um, but I did, you know, like I started playing music, you know, like every day. Yeah. When I was like eight years old. Yeah, and Rustic, um, Rustic was probably when I was like seventeen. Okay, yeah, I didn't mean to whistle on that. <laughs> seventeen, seventeen. Um, yeah, so Rustic started like around when I was seventeen. So I'm forty eight now. If I was good at math, I'd have a better job. Mm-hmm. But that's <laughs> that's how many years. Sure, sure. Um, who was and who was in that original? lineup of rustic overtones uh well we were a trio yeah that would dabble with like the concert band you know in high school or like we would you know horn players and it wasn't the type of thing like we needed every show but they might come and sit in yep so it wasn't so it was you vocals and guitar yep uh john john's on bass yeah and matt Esty on drums okay and we're all, uh, you know, kids from Gorm High School. Yeah. And then after that, uh, we met Tony, who just popped in here. Yeah. And Dave Noyes. Um, and then Dave Noyes was our first, like, permanent horn player. Sure. So he was always getting together the um, the horn section of, like, friends at USM or on jazz gigs that he did. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't until a few years after that when uh, Ryan Zoidis and Jason Ward were kind of, like, the mainstay they were with us through, you know, the Arista deal and the Tommy sure. deal and all the big tours. So that was kind of the main, right? The main lineup. And Spencer uh, came right after the horn section. Sure. So Dave was the, but he was the first horn player to be an official, like part of the band. Yeah, I gotcha. Yep. I gotcha. Was there always kind of the the hopes to have a horn section, or was it just it made sense with him, and then it kind of expanded from there? Um, well, we were like, our evolution was like, uh, listening to punk rock, yeah. listening to like skate rock, um, then hip hop and then like, um, reggae music yeah. and like, um, funk music and stuff like that and jazz. So, and ska, especially for the horns. Yeah. Um, we were like the evolution from like punk to ska is pretty quick once you start digging in. Sure. So, um, yeah, first we were just like really, you know, we wanted to be like a fun like ska party band. Yeah. And then it just got darker and darker. And sure, darker. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it's funny. My my introduction to you and your music was actually kind of kind of in the middle because my younger brothers um, were big rustic fans when they were in high school. And then actually the first time I ever saw you play was at, was at the University of New Hampshire in Durham. 
uh, with Paranoid Social Club. It was a pretty, it was a pretty small venue. It was before um, Access Two had even been released, and you know, my brother was like, "Oh yeah, it's a couple of guys from Rustic, but it's like a rock thing." Um, and I, I was, I was blown away because I was, uh, you know, it was a pretty small venue, but it was packed and just the command that you guys had. And I was like, I really dig this stuff. And then the record came out, checked it out, really, really dug it. And then I kind of went backwards, uh, Viva Nueva and, um, you know, Rooms by the Hour. And I was like, oh, this is a, this is a different sound than that band. And he's like, well, yeah, they're, it's a different band. It's some of the same guys, but it's a different kind of feel. So, um, kind of, kind of jumping around. Um, and I know it's probably been written about a lot, but, how did the whole thing with Clive Davis and Arista and then going into Tommy boy, how did that, how did that all come about? Well, this is a, this is a cool thing that um, we've really, well, mostly just me yeah. <laughs> has started talking about recently. Um, but um, we had a manager, uh, his name was Bill Beasley. Yeah. And he uh, was this mastermind um, he would just go super hard all the time yeah. before there was internet promotion, like hand up, hanging up flyers, sending out email lists, yeah. um, or getting snail mail from us. Yeah. Like we would actually, he would used to like get snail mail, uh, sent to our fans, like when we'd have shows coming up Yeah, and then he did this and then he started selling our records and hiring street teams to buy them all back. Yeah. Uh, and then also hire those street teams to. I'm totally exposing what a fraud our whole career is. <laughs> um, and hire street teams to request the song on the radio. So we would be, um, you know, like sold out at the store yep. and number one on the radio because everyone, I mean, people liked the song when they heard it, but he did these things to like get us in there. Sure. And then he also used to, we used to do showcases for record labels in New York. Yeah. And he would bust down like a bunch of main people. Um, and then he would hire actors to attend the show yeah. and learn the words to the song sure. dance. So we'd play these shows in New York and I would just look at the audiences like, you know, how does this like hot Japanese girl with a mohawk no. know the words to all my songs? <laughs> I'm from like a little town in Maine. Sure. Um, but, and then, you know, those people actually ended up becoming fans. That's how we kind of found that out. Yeah. But he did all these like really underhanded, I think for today's music business, it's not underhanded at all. It's sure. just like regular business. Right. <laughs> right. Could, but uh, he was early on that, like kind of uh, catfishing, uh, right. F that you're already famous before you are. Sure. Um, but uh, that's how we got the record deal. Yeah. Uh, is through those clubs in New York with uh, people from Maine bust up here to just, you know, a place like the Mercury Lounge yeah, um, or Arlene's Grocery. That's where we did one of our uh, showcases. But, you know, you could fill that with like 300 people and it looks amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a tiny energy. venue. But one of the things I'd like to go back to that you said before about you saw me uh, a very small venue, maybe not very many people. Um, there's uh, uh, a lot of people will testify that uh i go harder yep. when there's less people um i told spose that once as a joke he was like oh man there's not many people out there i was like i rock so much harder when there's <laughs> less people um because i just kind of focus on the people that are there yeah and i was like all right i got if i got five people i got five people to convince because yep. you could play for a thousand people and only convince five people sure you know what i mean yep. so like um 
like that's what that 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 would kind of give me power in those kind of situations well there was definitely uh the the vibe that i got the first time that i saw you was like oh these guys mean business and like it was very much like um you were in control of the room but also was like hey this is what we're about check it out like not even like hey you know if you guys want to look up for me drink check it out you're just like this is my room whatever else you're doing i don't give a shit but this is what i'm doing for the next 60 minutes or however long you guys played i've also never been able to afford like uh like a laser light show or sure. like led screens or like something that like lowers me up from, or raises me up from the stage or a harness yeah so i've always had to like just okay bring the rock with whatever we have right like we're set up in the corner of this restaurant or something but look pairing our dues coming up that that's how we got good at playing because yeah when we were in a situation like that we just wanted the juxtaposition to be obvious yeah that we were a really good band playing in the corner of an applebee's um and and just transform it um you know uh so that was always the thing and <laughs> i think it's important to be able to um to be able to rock sold out show yeah. and a great stage and all that, but also be able to just rock out like right here. You know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever's there, you can let her out if you want to let her out. Yeah. We've got, uh, you know, v- very technical, uh, letting the dog out on the podcast. <laughs> you know, when you got to pee, you got to pee. True. Yep. <laughs> um, so, you guys are playing the showcases with, uh, you know, professional fans, uh, yeah. as it were. Um, so then you guys got signed to the deal with Arista. Was it was it a multiple album deal? Like, uh, you know, was it just just for the one album and see? Like, eh, like, and then, like, what happened with there with that? Um, well, the the worst part about that question, yeah, is that I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know what we signed. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it entailed. I don't know what I was signing away. I just knew that it was 1999. Yep. And if you were a real band, you had a record deal. Sure. And that's, I just, whatever, you, I'm going to sign it. Do we really have to look at it more? Do we really have to wait for the lawyer? Yeah. Okay, no, I just want to sign it now. Can I just sign it? <laughs> um, but I've, I've always been kind of like that. Um and the music industry's changed so much that it almost doesn't matter sometimes. Sure. But the way that that kind of, uh, we left Arista, uh, Clive Davis, who had uh, signed us and discovered us. Yeah. Um, he was, his contract was up at Arista. Yeah. So L.A. Reed took over as president of the label and Clive Davis started J Records. Yep. Um, but we were left on Arista without really like an ally. Uh, and we fought notoriously with L.A. Reed, who I just heard was uh, he's canceled now. So, Interesting. Yeah, so that's good. I <laughs> I won. Feel a little justification. Yeah, I won there. the argument. We he sent us a mix of Feast or Famine um, on a CD. Yeah, because we weren't like emailing back and forth then. Yeah, and he sent us the CD, and uh, we listened to it and they had replaced our horns with like fake synthesizer horns yeah. and they replaced our drummer with like a, a really cheesy, like, right. um, so we hated the mix completely and we lit it on fire and, and pissed on it and videotaped it and sent it to LA Reed. <laughs> um, but those are the kind of arguments we used to have. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't, we were on Arista long with uh, LA Reed before, 
Tommy Boy um, bought us from Arista. Yeah. And that's what uh, our debut like label album, uh, Viva Nueva, came out on Tommy Boy. Yep. Um, how did did you how did that come about? Did you guys have a champion who worked for Tommy Boy? Yeah, we well we had um Kurt St. Thomas who's our AR at Arista. Yeah. Um he was uh he used to be a DJ at WFNX and he was the first DJ to ever play Nirvana on the radio. Okay. Um and he was with us and when Clive Davis left, uh, you know, he was like working in a uh, just a fledgling rock department. It wasn't yeah. like, it was just like a new idea. Yeah. Um, they hadn't really done much with rock. They'd done a lot of R and B. They'd done a lot of hip hop. Um, so he left there as well. And when he got the job at Tommy boy, we yeah. were one of the first groups that, uh, he wanted to sign. So that was over the course of like, it didn't take very long for us to go from one label to the next yeah. and then put the record out. It was maybe a year and a half. The record was already done at that point though. Correct. It was, but we changed uh, some things um, for its release. And then we also released um, just like at our merch table. I think you might be able to get it online too. Um, but a Viva Nueva as we had attended it with um, Tony Visconti. Okay. Um, who was the producer. Yeah. Who was the guy who introduced, introduced us to uh, David Bowie. Yeah. So that was... Um, that was kind of remixed and a lot of things were done to the the final thing that we weren't, it wasn't really like our original idea. It wasn't like we didn't disliked it. Yep. It was just different than the the record that we had made with Tony. So um, there is a, I don't even know what it's called, like a remastered or like a reissue, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of even way uh, that has some slight changes, like yep. the song check and the song hardest way possible. Um, everyone thought those were like the hits. So like we had to, we have probably 17 different versions of each song. Sure. Um, and they're all like 17 different times we went in the studio and like, okay, check right. again, hardest way possible again. Yeah. This time we're going to play it faster. Now we're going to play a little slower. Um, so, um, yeah, but that was kind of like that time period. Yeah. The best thing about being a Tommy boy was that um, uh, we got to meet so many like hip hop groups that all the groups we went on tour with were like De La Soul and Run yep. DMC and Steel Pulse. Yeah. Um, so I think that that made us that made us good because like it was a ruthless audience like ready to boo us off the stage sure. every night. We did find out a couple times uh, that yes, you might get booed off the stage. <laughs> um, so, but for the most part, it was like the opposite. Yeah. Uh, we like went over the crowds, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a fun time. The, the cool, um, well, the sad thing is, um, um, the, uh, plug two, plug three from De La Soul who passed away recently. Yeah. And they had been fighting with Tommy boy for 20 years yeah. since we were on there for their whole catalog and he they finally just won the lawsuit and got yeah. the catalog and then he passed away but that's no, bittersweet yeah yeah um uh so tony brought in david bowie made that happen was that like was he in the studio with you or did he like i mean yeah. that must have been surreal i mean i've seen pictures from the time but like 
What was that like meeting him? Yeah, there, there's pictures of us just standing there posing because, um, like, we didn't all have a camera in our pocket. Sure. At the time. Right. right. <laughs> and, uh, but we spent, like, you know, a good part of the summer uh, with him and Tony Visconti. Yeah. And we would go uh, to restaurants with Tony, uh, with David Bowie. Yeah. Um, we'd take cabs around New York with David Bowie. We went to the um, rock and roll museum with David Bowie. He had a, um, he had a rock line interview yeah. at the, I think it's the Museum of Rock and Roll History. And uh, we, he brought us to it um, and he was doing an interview and they asked him about collaborations. And the craziest thing was like um, him talking about, yeah, I've collaborated with uh, John Lennon and, and Freddie Mercury and Lou Reed and the Rustic Overtones. Yeah. And I was just like getting mentioned wow, in the same sentence. Like, that's crazy. And he also introduced us to uh, Joey Ramone yeah. um, and Natalie Merchant and a bunch of people uh, that were just like legends. It's just like mind-blowing to be yeah. around these people um, and, and to be in these places. And like Philip Glass's studio is where we recorded with Bowie and uh, Bowie's guitar player, Reeves Gabrels from uh, Tin Machine, yeah. just like stopped by. And he was like a big hero of mine as a guitar player. Yeah. And to have him just like walk into the studio and sit down at my session was like, this is crazy. That's nuts. I was, um, it's funny. I, I'm a pretty big Bowie fan and, um, you know, the tin machine, uh, the two records and then the live record they did. It's been like, there's like legal battles with the sales brothers, you know, the rhythm section from that band. And I was just I popped into savers the other day. And just in the wild, I found the first tin machine CD, which I've been looking for, for 20 years. It's, great. it's so good. It's <laughs> yeah. so good. And you know, yeah. Reeve, Reeves Gabrels is one of the most underrated guitar players of the last like quarter century. He's playing with the cure now, which I think is amazing. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I read an article uh, in like guitar player magazine where, he was talking about uh, an air conditioner the whole time. <laughs> he was like, I was in this place and I was listening to this air conditioner and I was listening to the rhythmic pattern of it. Yeah. And he like couldn't stop. And it was like, they, I think they asked him what he was influenced by like recently. And he was like, oh, this air conditioner right. on the street. It's like, it's amazing. But uh, all, all a bunch of very imaginative, eccentric right. uh, legends, like all those guys. You guys, um, you guys also had, uh, Imogene Heap yes. sang on that record, which was several years before she kind of blew up. How did that come about? Um, well, Imogene Heap um, randomly opened for us uh, at a venue in Killington, Vermont. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we became friends. And then we um, had a album release show in Portland. And we asked her if she would like to come and uh, open. Yeah. Because she was going to be in the States. So uh, she came and opened that. And after the show, um, a friend of mine was like, um, hey, I have my four by four truck. Um, there's these like all these there's this mudding place where yeah. we can go in the middle of the woods and drive the four by four truck. Do you want to do this? And I was like, yes. And I told Imogen about it. Yeah. So we went uh, late night and like drank whiskey and beer and went <laughs> mudding nice. uh, in the middle of the woods in a Jeep. Um and became instant friends. Um, and then uh, we just started corresponding back and forth, doing more shows together. Um, 
I actually, me and my family actually uh, saw her and, and spent like two days with her and her family uh, in Boston last year. Nice. And we still keep in touch quite a bit. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So I, after that point, um, when the whole thing with Tommy Boy released the record and then it just kind of, like what happened afterwards? I mean, I know you guys kind of took a break around like what, 2002, 2003? Yeah. Your guess is better than mine. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. Was it? Um, was it? Were you guys just kind of feeling burnt out? Um, well, I mean, like when you have um, th- situations like that with a label and all these people working for you and all these people kind of building you up and building you up, yeah. and then when it kind of crashes, it's just a lot of like, um, you know, you're selling you essentially. Yeah. Um, so it's a little different than if you were selling like this microphone yeah. and someone's just like, you know what? I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it sounds. It's just wrong. It's not as good as the other microphones. You'd be like, fine, whatever. Here's right. your money back. Right. But when it happens and it's like you're selling yourself, uh, it's we were all very discouraged and we all got the feeling that like we had tried this. We tried everything we could do. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that we're all a little discouraged. Um but then as soon as we kind of broke up, we were all just like, like, well, let's try something else. Yeah. So that's why you were talking earlier about how drastic the sound between Rustic and, and Paranoid Social Club was. Yeah. Um, that was mostly because, I mean, with Rustic, we had tried all these different things yeah. uh, stylistically. Um, but one thing we didn't try was just like being super loud and just mashing. Everything. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. I'm going to check on the dog. Yeah, ask the question. Totally. Ask the next question and I'll be sure, back. Sure. Sure. So, um when you guys split up at that point, did you think that's it for Rustic? Uh, that's the end of that chapter of my life and here's a new chapter or did you I mean, how were relationships with the guys in the band with you know, from Rustic at that point? Um were, were you guys still talking pretty regularly or Yeah, we we've, we've all been always um you know, it's just a, it's a tight knit community. So like, you can't like, you can't, you can really not avoid sure uh, being in some kind of situation musically yeah. where you're in a room with any of these people, because yeah. we all play with each other. We all have the same friends. Yeah. Uh, the dog's just <laughs> going back and forth as fast as she can right now. Yeah. If you hear scampering in the background, that that's like uh, a wild stampede. Yeah. Hey, Tara, can you be easy? <laughs> can you be easy? Playtime's over? She's like, I don't know if I can. I'll try. I don't think she can. I'll try. Be a good girl. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, you know, we just got kind of discouraged as like the value of Rustic. Sure. Um, and then we did like, we did a few shows like toward the end where um, we were like trying to replace band members as they left. Sure. <laughs> and uh, the like the last incarnation of the, the band was basically... Um, like a different horn player every week. Yeah. And then the, the core of paranoid social club. Yeah. And, um, so this is kind of confusing, but paranoid social club was the name of a rustic song. Okay. Um, that I was working on for the next record. Um, I had intended on making the next rustic record about, um, mental illness. Okay. Um, so paranoid social club was an idea that I came up with that read like a brochure, um, for a place for misfits. Okay. Um, and 
So that was just kind of an idea for a record. And then once Rustic kind of fell apart and it was just the core again, it was like a, the power trio again. Right. Um, that's when we uh, decided to use Paranoid Social Club as the name of the band. Right. And that's when we like, uh, so all our records are Axis 1 through Axis 5. And they're all, uh, that's how, you know, mental illness is diagnosed in like a medical book. Right. By different axes. So we yeah. tried to, it, you know, we tried to, with the mood and some of the lyrics and stuff too, um, just like set the tone for those different things like hypertension, stress, depression. Um, yeah. Was, uh, was it a conscious decision at some point then to release Axis 2 as the first album? Like what was the, was it kind of like uh, inspired by Indiana Jones? Have the first one actually be the second one? Well, no, although I am very inspired by Indiana Jones. <laughs> Indiana Jones is like my my jam. Nice. That is my, my shit. And I'm really excited there's a new one coming out. Me too. Um, but no, it was just um, because we decided we wanted to do that. And then they were like, oh, okay, cool. Like, let's check out the medical book. And it was like, oh, one is depression. Right. So like, we can't start. We can't come out the gate with a right. depressing album. And if you listen to that record, that's like our, that's probably the weirdest record I've ever put onto tape. Axis one. Axis one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we just went crazy. We, we had talked to our manager. He said, we want to make a double album for this one because hypertension and stress One's going to be like really like fast and upbeat and right. exciting uh, and like hyper. And then the other one's going to be depression. But we want to have a double album because by themselves, they would be too, too much, much of one thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, he said, no, we can't afford that. Um, so you need to just make one album. Just be like a regular band. Don't do this crazy <laughs> stuff. So we finished the first record and we turned it into him. Um, to be duplicated and he was like well where's the other one i thought you uh said you're making a double album yeah we we're like you said we can afford it he's like well i got the money yeah and i booked the days uh, at the mastering studio to master two albums yeah and so we're like all right when's mastering and he was like in three days so we're like all right we have some ideas we're just gonna go in the studio we're gonna make access one in three days damn and um we <laughs> the uh the guy next to us um, gave us um, Adderall. Yep. Uh, and he was like, oh, you can just go into my space and uh, grab some more Adderall if you want it uh, to stay awake. Um, and we got in this little time, it didn't continue, thankfully, but we got right. hooked on Adderall for sure. the session. Um, and we, and he told us to just go in his room, but like the, there was something up with the lock. Like we couldn't open it. Like he said, we couldn't figure it out. So, we we're climbing through the ceiling as a drop ceiling like this. Yep. And we were climbing through the ceiling to get out, to get into that room, oh, okay. to get the Adderall and then coming back. And we we're like, <laughs> oh, we just grab two and we'll split them up. And then, uh, you know, it'd be more and more after like the end of the, the, the third day, uh, it was, uh, we were maniacs literally climbing through the ceiling to, to, to get fuel to, and I'm not going to say his name, but, um, someone from another band, um, that had, um, escaped, um, from a mental institution, yeah, um, came to the space and was like, my parents had me committed, and uh, I just got out of there. I couldn't stand it, and we're like, well, hide here with us. We're making a record for three days. Yeah, so he sang all the backing vocals on the record, um, and we kind of went through like a mental illness thing with him. Yeah, while we're making the record, um, so it, it all felt like really genuine, and yeah. Uh, 
we had no, you know, there was no like overthinking anything. Yeah. We didn't have enough time. <laughs> after that, after the double album, uh, there was the self-titled, which is kind of like a compilation almost. Oh, right, right. That, well, that was um, a label signed us yeah. and wanted to take a collection. They just wanted to basically cherry pick through our catalog and right. put a record out. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, like a greatest hit. Was, right um, was that before or after the Wasted ended up being in the movie Beer Fest? That was at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're the ones who uh, got that out to the people. And- gotcha. Was that more like a, hey, we want to have a product People are going to hear the song in the movie. We want to have a product they can go into the record store and buy. Uh, I think the record had already come out. Okay. I'm not sure though. I'm not sure of the time frame of that. Yeah. I do remember um, going to the movie theater to see it. There's no kind of premiere at first. We were like, oh, we get to go to the premiere. Right. Which was nice. Um, I went to the premiere of Take Me to the River, which is the movie that I was nominated uh, for a Grammy right. for the soundtrack. And um, Was that out in LA? Yeah. Yeah. And I got to sit in a director's chair yep. with the director of the movie um, and the producers and do a Q&A after the, the premiere of the movie, yep. which was amazing to me. I was in Hollywood at a movie premiere in a director's chair talking about uh, my work on the, on the, the song. What was, the, what was the time frame for that? Was that um, how, much, how much time before... The actual Grammys was that, or was that around the same time? That was uh, the, that was like the day before they had done the film festival circuit, and they were dropped. They dropped on Amazon the same day. Okay. Um, so how did that? How did that all come about? You writing that song uh, for Aaron Neville and the Dirty Dozen Brass Band? Like, how did that come about? Um, so it was eight years ago that okay. I wrote it. Um, and, uh, Eric Krasno had been talking to Aaron Neville. Eric Krasno is from uh, soul live yeah. and he has Eric Krasno in the assembly. Um, and he's a producer. He's, he produced like Justin Timberlake and mm. 50 cent and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so I had worked with him writing some projects and he said, I might be able to do this Aaron Neville record. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, great. So I wrote this song, um, called love is strong okay and so it was all about you know what i think of aaron neville i think of uh he's a big muscular dude right uh with tats on his face yeah but he has like a voice that could just like melt ice yeah you know so um um so I wrote this song called Love is Strong, um, which might have been too uh, on the nose for him because we didn't put it on the record yet. Um, but it got me the audition. Um, and then we wrote eight more songs to go with that uh, for a second audition. And we beat out Keith Richards and Don Was wow. as the other uh, writing and production team. Yeah. Um, and then because part of it, um, I had talked to Aaron and I kind of do this uh, niche songwriting uh, that isn't really, I don't know much, uh, many people out there that kind of approach this way with an artist, but yeah. I don't write songs and be like, here, do you want this song? Or do you want this song? Or do you want this? I kind of write for that person. I get to know them yeah. or I listen to their catalog. And sure. I think of, um, I watch live videos, like what, 
does someone want from this person? Like what? Because you know, think of your favorite, one of your favorite artists. Yeah. Like if you could have your hands in uh, making a record like, oh, I wish you would just make it record like that old stuff. Or, right. You know what I mean? Like right. I wish you'd make one like that live one that had, you know, so I kind of went, I kind of go into it as a fan. I interview them about their life and stuff. So a lot of the things they're saying are personal. Yeah. Uh, they're not just, I love you, baby. It's, it's actually about their life. And then Aaron got really into this idea. Yeah. And he started giving me uh, poems that he had written. Um, and he gave me, and then the more I started incorporating lines from these poems and themes from these poems, um, he would send me more and more personal stuff. Yep. And he'd be like, oh, here are a bunch of letters that I wrote to my wife. And this is, oh, wow. uh, these are letters that I wrote um, uh, to, or this is a poem I wrote when my uh, family member died. And um, I read it at a funeral. And, you know, he, so he would send me all this stuff. Um, stuff he wrote as a kid about uh, the music scene. That's like where the stomp ground stuff yep. comes from. So I just kind of got all these ideas together and we wrote a record about his life, um, which uh, turns out to also be the anthem <laughs> for New Orleans because right. it's all about every street corner and every person that's kind of um, made the city what it is. Yeah. So the movie uh, Take Me to the River, New Orleans, um, used that as kind of like the the lead single and like the the big song from the movie and sure. it got nominated and uh the whole time i thought i was like getting old and i was getting scammed yeah i thought that oh someone sees and i'm a songwriter i'm out here hashtagging songwriter some algorithm ai's right. bot is after me huh. and i didn't really get nominated for a grammy right. this can't be right right um i was getting our grammy ticket seats and being like and there was like all these service fees and stuff. And they're like, we need your credit card. Like, I don't want to give these people my credit card. This is a scam. Yeah. I can't possibly be going to the Grammy. Sure. Um, and, and I didn't until the moment that I was actually holding the Grammy on stage. Yeah. I was like, felt like a total imposter. Yeah. We didn't dare to go get a gift bag at the thing where you get gift bags right. for coming to the Grammys. We were like, dude, that's not for us. Right. Uh, and then as soon as we won the Grammy, um, my daughter and I, uh, we were like, where's the red carpet? We got to find the red carpet. We got to get a picture on the red carpet. Right. So we went to look for the red carpet and these big security guys stopped us and were like, we need to see your passes. And we showed our passes and they were like, those passes don't get in here. And we're like, oh man. And I was like, I've been playing music since I was eight years old yeah. and I'm 48. I just won a Grammy. I'm from a small town in Portland and this is my teenage daughter that I brought to the Grammys. Yeah. And he was like, they printed us off all access passes. And as soon as we got those passes, we just walked into like everybody. Like yeah. Trevor Noah was right there. Yeah. And I saw Nas and I saw every, everybody, you know, yeah. like um, it was insane. Um, but at, that was the moment that I was like, okay, this is real. Yeah. I did this, uh, but it's. It's How'd your really, daughter feel about that that whole experience? Uh, she feels great about it. She had a great time. Nice. Um, we had so much fun. We went. Um, the cool thing about California, I found that uh, this about uh, California when I was there, that they made Hollywood there because you can have a beach, 
You can have a city. You can have a forest. You can have a desert. You can have a snowy mountaintop. Yeah. Um, all in one area. Right. So we were like uh, hiking in these canyons every single day and like trying to zen out with a bald eagle energy. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like try right. to like, wish for good things. And um, I don't know. It was, it was the whole thing was like really spiritual for me because I mean, it's kind of like what I've been after my whole life and I, sure. I don't think that um not not necessarily a grammy but um i guess validation for my hard work and hard validation sure. for sacrifices um so we we're out there it was very spiritual um and yeah everything just like worked out perfect and it was great and she had an amazing time she got to have a designer like make her dress yeah by like a picture and she ended up looking um accidentally looking just like tiana from the princess and the frog yep yep which is set in new orleans yeah so it actually uh you know tied into the whole new orleans theme yeah but i was i was grateful for two things with a grammy win uh one i was glad that i didn't get it when i was 22 or 23 when yeah. i got signed and um you know i had like gel in my hair and i had like I, I like too much jewelry on and stuff right. like I didn't want to get signed during that time. I'd probably be dead now if I had. Right. But the fact that I worked through all that and everything, uh, it felt like it had more soul because I had gone so long not giving up. Uh, and then the second thing that I was really proud of is the fact that I've written some songs that are like pandering they're yep. low-hanging fruit to try to get a hit someone wants to make a disco song and i'm like you know i'm down sure I'll make some brainless stuff people like that music sure um but this music had this like culture <laughs> well dog discipline. sorry the dog was uh eating our astroturf <laughs> um but it had this culture and it had this uh resonance and it had this like soulfulness to the song and the, the history of new orleans and and you know the whole katrina stuff is yeah. like heartbreaking in that part of the movie um but it, it felt good that i actually was there representing something i was truly proud of yeah um that truly had like a, it was a big statement yeah. you know what i mean yeah absolutely and you were telling me um you know when i first got here that you're working on something they're doing a take me to the river uh, oh, I get. Well, I can't. I can talk about they're doing. Uh, Take me to the river. I don't think it's London. Yeah, but somewhere uh, I in can't England. Can't talk too much about. Totally. That. Yeah, that's still uh, in in production. in the process. Yeah, but that's cool. You know, I interview people for movies, and they they can't talk about sure. things. Now you I've get never. To, I've never been that guy. Yeah. I'd have to have you sign an NDA. And an NDA. Yeah. Um, but it's cool that um, there have been opportunities. Since then, I mean, have you found, um, you know, cause when I first came in, you were working on production for someone else too. have, have there been new opportunities that have opened up in the time since then, since the Grammy one? Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends the other day said to me, um, and it's weird, he, but he was like, it's like you're a made man. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, I like the sound of that, but it really is true. Um, and I didn't know this, uh, not that the Illuminati is real, right? but, um, everything opens up. There's people that reach out to you yeah. that uh, it opens doors and like people offer you free things and free, um, endorsements and sponsorships and stuff like that stuff that, you know, I've been doing it for a long time and, you know, I've been 
treading water, yeah. you know, uh, be, but I'm always just like, you know what? I love music. I love making music. I feel like I was put here to make music. I have no other skills, so I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep doing it. So, you know, it, it's, it's really great to get, um, some recognition and to have some doors open. Yeah. I just want to write for more people. Yeah. Um, I have so much fun just someone else's, um, strengths being my weaknesses and vice versa. Yeah. That whole dynamic in the studio where you just bring out the best and everyone that's there and you all get excited together. Yeah. I can't think of any other moment, um, you know, other than that, that, that chemistry between people that happens when actually making music. Yeah. That's the, that's the goal. That's the success right there. Like, absolutely. Absolutely. Are you, is rustic, and or paranoid still something that's active for you as well um well well paranoid i do the that podcast with trent from paranoid social yep. club every week and every time like we get a gig like someone calls and asks us, us to do a gig we're always like oh right it's just uh that music takes a lot of energy yeah um but so i don't think we're gonna do paranoid social club and we're all kind of like spread around to our drummer is in like Spain right now. Okay. And he plays in a billion bands. Um, but we're doing, we're doing uh, some rustic stuff. Um, we're doing the army festival in, um, at Threshers in Searsmont. Yep. Uh, with a whole bunch of people. There's a, it's a big festival and it should be a fun time, but, uh, rustic is not the, really the same without, uh, Dave noise sure. passed away. Yeah. Um, and, so we're trying to honor the catalog by doing like one or two big shows a year. Sure. Um, but it, we used to just grind it out all the time. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to be doing that. Um, but so hopefully when we do have a show, um, that everyone will come from all these little places that we usually play sure. or come to one big show. Yeah. Well, I, I do know, you know, uh, and you know, my condolences on, on Dave's passing. I know, um, you know, your 2019 album with Dave on the cover, it's a self-titled record, which to me was like a pretty big statement about like that. This is, this is rustic overtones. Like, I don't know. That was, yeah. that was a pretty powerful thing. Also, uh, our first song we ever released, our first single, um, at, with the current lineup, yeah. um, was called 20 years. Yeah. And if you went 20 years later, that's when self-titled came out. Yeah. So it's almost like our career went backwards. Sure. <laughs> sure. Like, cause self-titled is usually like a first album. Right. Right. Um, but, but that was, that was one of the, um, the greatest albums, uh, to make because we worked around Dave Noyes' voice memos. Right. We had talked through a bunch of songs. We had a couple songs. Uh, we probably had three or four songs that we were working on, but then uh, that we actually had a session recording and going, and we had laid parts on it. Yeah. Um, but then there was a handful of other songs that um, he had. It was mixed between that, a bunch of like weird, um, just instrumentals that Rustic made, and I just wrote over them. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, these voice memos where it was just ideas that Dave had that he hadn't showed us yeah. um, that we just went through and we used the actual voice memo um, in the tracks yep. and they, and he's talking through the form in some of the songs in the first song he's, 
if you listen really close, he's telling you to go to the minor chord yep. <laughs> at the yep. end of every phrase. Yeah. We loop it. Uh, so at the end of every phrase, like go to the minor chord. Yeah. <laughs> and he laughs. It's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke to Dave to like put in a messed up chord at the end of the phrase. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great tribute to him as well, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, that's why I love that record because we were just like, of all the things, you know, um, when we broke up or even on stage, like we're always trying to like not outdo each other, but always raise the bar yeah. of like how musical we can be. And um, for us, that was like, we have to make Dave proud. Yeah. We have to know it because he's not here to tell us sure. that it's good, but we have to know that Dave would know, think this is good. So, um, you know, Dave would always go with like the weird choice, yeah. like, you know, like musically. So we'd always, whenever we come up with this really strange part or this really out part, we would just feel like we were channeling Dave. Like that's what Dave would do. Like, yeah. Um, so it was fun making that record, even though it was, you know, it was sad. Um, it, it felt like we were spending time with Dave during the, the making of that. Sure. Sure. Um, that's a pretty good place. I've, uh, I'm going to go to the, the aforementioned like pre-prepared questions, but, um, that's pretty good. That's a good place to jump into there. Uh, do you remember what your first live show like was like the first live show that you saw was? Oh, saw. Yes. Uh, it was at the civic center. Yeah. It was quiet riot. Um, and armored saint opened. Holy cow. What uh, what time frame are we talking? Like mid eighties? Yeah, early eighties. Yeah, yeah. Damn, man. Well, no, probably. Yeah, I was ten, so it was eighty four. Wow, wow. Did you have a good time? Yeah. Nice. Uh, Beatles or Stones? Beatles. All right. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. All right. So far, everyone has said Star Wars. I know I'm going to find someone that says <laughs> Star Trek, but uh, I think I know the answer to this one already. But cats or dogs? Dogs. All right. Um, what's and it doesn't have to be the number one of all time, but like, what's a favorite book of yours? Um, Charles Bukowski, Ham on Rye. Nice, nice. And uh, last but not least, and this is a question that kids get asked all the time, but when we grow up, no one asks us anymore. And I'm trying to bring it back. What's your favorite dinosaur? Mm, I would say I, I like uh, I like the Velociraptor. Nice, nice. Good choice, awesome. Um, yeah, this has been this has been great, man. It's yeah. uh, like I said, uh, you were on the original list of the people that I wanted to talk to, and I can finally nice. cross it off the back of my old notebook. Well, uh, you know, come by anytime. I, I'll I'll be working on trying to achieve more things that right. we can talk about. Um, but um, I really appreciate you talking about my music uh, and uh, what I got going on and what I've been doing. I, and I also appreciate you following that, even if you didn't Absolutely. talk to me about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. Cool.